Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options market across all major asset classes. Just visit your online broker and get started. Plug into valuable educational materials and trading tools and see what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash on the tape. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. iConnections membership only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. Welcome to the On The Tape podcast, Guy Dami, Dan Nathan, Danny Moses. You know, in 60 minutes, it's like season 62, episode yeah. one. Yeah. I don't know. I'm making that up. But this is season four, episode one of the On The Tape podcast. Yeah, season four episode one that's a pretty amazing pretty cool it is pretty cool and i spent danny by the way how are you happy new year to you as well i mean that's the last time i'm going to say that by the way that's it. It's if you over. say it again i'm audi 5000 i'm just saying <laughs> people right. say that to me now just to upset me yeah they okay. do well and then and they're successful but i spent some part of the holidays reading i like to read yeah you know i have a lot of favorite sort of holiday shows i will tell you it's a wonderful life is a wonderful movie. Jim Stewart, by the way, when Jim Stewart came back from the war is when they made that movie. So, you know, the scenes with which he's exercised and upset, I mean, that's like PTSD stuff going on. I don't want to get too into the weeds, but that's not character acting. I mean, that's him being him, number one. But I also love Christmas Carol. Dickens, Charles Dickens. You're familiar with this? Sure. You like Charles Dickens? Nope. Now, there's a saying, Danny Moses, you scare the Dickens out of somebody. And a lot of people say, well, that's got to be Charles Dickens. It's not because this was sort of Shakespearean era and Charles Dickens obviously came around in the 1800s. So let's just be clear. But there's a book that I actually read <laughs> during the break. Anybody want to guess quickly, Dan Nathan? The things they no. carried. Danny Moses. Uh, Time out. You're out. Great okay. Expectations. Oh, wow. Great Expectations. That's a Charles Dickens novel. Yeah. And it's fitting, Great Expectations, because so much of what went on in the end of last year is predicated on the expectations of, and I'm banging the desk, all these Fed rate cuts in 2024. They're great expectations, Danny Moses. But I ask you, are these expectations a little ahead of themselves? Are the expectations over their skis? Is it scaring the dickens out of you? See the way I tie all that together? Danny Moses. Very good. No, I think it's the the reason that they would be cutting is what's scaring people. Are they cutting because inflation's ebbing? Are they cutting because the economy's slowing? I actually think that the Goldilocks 
scenario is actually a bad one for the markets. On a soft landing where the economy is kind of okay, but inflation doesn't really drop that much, the Fed's not going to cut. And you have a hard time having an excuse to own the markets at these valuations. I'm, I'm not talking about stocks individually, just the markets in general. Fed minutes came out yesterday on Wednesday. We're recording here Thursday afternoon. And all they did was reiterate what pretty much happened in the press conference and the dot plot in the middle of December in their meeting. What did they take? What did they give us? They gave us three rate cuts in 2024. The market decided to price in six. The stock market trades with obviously Fed fund futures more than it does believe anything the Fed says because the Fed has been known to be very wrong. So we're having this adjustment right now where Fed rate cut expectations, if they're going to happen, are going to be pushed out a little bit as we're seeing the March chances for a cut drop slightly as we as we move forward here. But more importantly, we set up at the end of 2022 into 23, the exact opposite of the end of 23 into 24. What do we mean? People came in positioned defensively into the beginning of 23. This year was the opposite. Three or four days doesn't make a market and doesn't make a year. But if this is any indication, I think when you see companies miss earnings, you're going to get pummeled, like we saw today in Mobileye. When you're going to do these things, that to me is going to be kind of the trend we move forward here. I think that the Fed thing is obviously going to be front and center. First meeting is at the end of January. We'll see what happens. But again, great article today that quoted the BlackRock credit strategist, Amanda Lyman, about what to expect of the Fed this year and how credit spreads have widened considerably in a two or three day period here. And that's just because we all agreed we got a little over our skis in credit and in equities at the end of 2023. To your point, Danny, about how investors were positioned coming into last year, this is 2023, and how they're positioned coming into 2024. And you think of just the surge that we had in equities predicated on the drop in yields, right? So the 10-year, you know, interestingly enough, in late July, early August, broke out above 4% and made that kind of move up until the October highs, just above 5% in late October, right? And so you have that ricochet action in equities as soon as we got yields topping out and on their way lower. Obviously, that mid-November gap that we had in equities after that October CPI print, and it was kind of lights out. So here we are back above 4% right now. This is, again, Thursday afternoon. And if we were to get a move back to four and a quarter, and to your point about what the Fed tracker is pricing for that March meeting, now it's about 63% chance of a cut, right? And so that's down substantially over the last few weeks. So if investors have to kind of realign their expectations for yields and expectations for valuations in and around equities and in and around what growth might look like in 2024, you know, to me, that is actually the thing that plays out as we get into Q4 earnings season. I'm glad that you brought up this kind of 25% drop in Mobileye. I think that, and Guy and I were talking about this a little bit earlier, just as investors were looking to hold on and goose some of their biggest gainers into year-end 2023 and then maybe take some profit profits, right, early in the new year and divert, you know, paying taxes until this year. They were also doing that with some of the stories that were less good than Microsoft or Apple or Amazon or some of those things, right? And so here you have a company guiding lower like Mobileye and you sell first, ask questions later. And I just do agree that that might be something that we see across a lot of these less secure stories. But if we do see them in any of the bigger stories, and I'll just highlight the fact that Google, Alphabet in late October when they reported their Q3 and guided that stock gap down 9%. You know what I mean? So there might be plenty of disasters lurking in some of these names that I think complacency ran very hot, but you also had a calendar where people were perfectly happy to kind of goose things into year end and see where things stand as we get into January. Going back to great expectations, yeah. it revolves around the protagonist, a seven-year-old orphan named Philip Perrup. 
Hard to say. His friends called him Pip. I was not his friend. But three stages of expectations in the book, and I would suggest we're probably just entered the second stage of these expectations that people have for the Federal Reserve. So keep your eye on rates because as we're sitting here now on a Thursday, as Danny mentioned, and Dan, as you sort of alluded to, 10-year yields, which I think got as low as 3.82%, have now gone back through 4% on the upside. So there are obviously things going on below the surface, but we wanted to start the year off with some of the things that are sort of sticking out to us this first week of trading. Now, understanding There are a lot of things going on, right? There's money being moved. There's allocations going on. I totally get it. But with that said, sometimes you can take a theme away. And the theme that I take away is the resurgence, ex-Eli Lilly, by the way, which is his own animal, making its all-time high. But in big cap pharma, specifically if you want to get down to it, Pfizer's gotten off the mat, Dan. That's something you've been talking about on Market Call. So that's showing some signs of life. But Merck, which had been basically forgotten about since May of last year, has gotten back on its horse and is now trading right around a prior all-time high. So there seems to be this reallocation, at least through my eyes, through the lens that I'm looking at, back into big cap pharma, which was a theme for me all of last year that played out, didn't play out. But I also think it's going to start to play out this year. So I'm watching, obviously, Merck. Eli Lilly is its own animal. They had some encouraging news today being Thursday. Bristol Myers, though, is one that you really got to keep your eye on because that's a stock that's languished now for many years, not unlike Pfizer. But I think there's a chance that BMY picks its head up into this year, Dan Nathan. Also, when we talk about expectations, I mean, obviously, Novo Nordisk and Eli Lilly make up a trillion dollars in combined market cap right now, right? So totally outsized moves. If you just want to look at any of the ETFs that track the pharma space, they obviously did a lot of the heavy lifting there, despite the underperformance of the broad group that you just highlighted. So, you know, the XLV, the ETF that that tracks that space, went from, in late October, a 52-week low to, just this week, a new 52-week high. And I think that's something really important to keep an eye on on a lot of individual names or sectors that have done that because to me, it also had the year-end sort of beta chase and and a lot of those sorts of dynamics. I'll I'll just give you the best example of that is the Russell 2000 in small caps that did exactly that and it's come down much harder than let's say the S&P 500 or even the NASDAQ over the last week or so. So those things I I think you really want to keep an eye out on is like what is doing the heavy lifting within a sector, especially if you're looking at it on a sector basis and then what are the specific fundamentals or catalyst for an individual stock, especially as we get into earnings season. And Guy, you mentioned Pfizer, you know, late last year when that company really just guided lower, it looked like the kitchen sink, like, like, like you know, 2024. It was set up for huge volume day, gap to multi-year lows back towards its pandemic lows. And we obviously all know the heavy lifting that Pfizer did during the pandemic, right? But this thing had been cut in half. So with expectations basically at zero, it doesn't take a whole heck of a lot to to get a stock up 15% in a short period of time. I've learned a lot from Danny Moses over these now, I mean, three years plus. We've known Danny longer than that. But one of the things that he taught me was the Friday night dirty. Danny, is that your, that's something that you came up with, right? There's many meetings. And to Dan's point, it was a Friday afternoon after the bell when Pfizer came out and said what they said. And I will tell you, Tyler Matheson was hosting Fast Money that night, and I absolutely fricasseed Pfizer on live TV. But to your point, Dan, that wound up being sort of the trough in this whole thing. So I'm going to keep my eye on Pfizer as well. They still have issues without question, but that's, again— 
You're playing a little stock market here, right? Is that a stock that can go from 29 to 35? Yeah, it's still probably a bad business, but it might not be a bad stock here, Dan. So we'd be remiss early this year. I mean, Apple, 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 Apple. But as we sit here today on Thursday, and something could happen on Friday as this is dropping, three downgrades. Yeah. Three. One, two, Barclays. I think it was D.A. Davidson. And then Piper Sandler, Piper, whatever they Piper, Pied Piper, something Piper, all downgrading Apple for effectively the same reasons and things that we've been pointing out for a while. So I think that sort of sticks out to you. Yeah, and that's one thing. Like, like this stock at its lows today was down about nearly 10% from its all-time highs, the new all-time high that it just made a couple weeks ago. And again, here's a company that you know gained a trillion dollars in market cap last year. It was the worst performing of the MAG7. It was only up 49% in 2023, but it's still pretty astounding. But it traded at one of the fattest multiples when it was just trading at those highs, very near 30 times this current fiscal 2024. And I'll just, like, listen, these guys, did not get any of the benefit, in my opinion, of all the excitement in and around generative AI last year, but expected earnings growth about 7% this year, expected sales growth about 5%. That cash pile that they have relative to their debt with a market cap where it is, the buybacks are not nearly as impactful as they had been over the last few years or so. So the story is just less interesting at a time where China can continue to be a headwind. Maybe there's margin pressure as you think about reshoring. And generally, smartphones PCs, it's just a pretty flat-ish sort of market. So to me, I get it. I do think it was interesting that Barclays, the first thing that they did right out of the gate was downgrade the largest equity on the planet. And now you have this thing down 5% on the year. It's something that we want to keep an eye on because the sentiment on this one seems to be souring, but you want to be careful in some of these stories as they get closer to earnings because the bar for them to jump over as you get into earnings, the harder hit they are on an independent basis or relative to to their peers is that much easier for them to outperform post earnings. I've seen Danny Moses golf. He's pretty, pretty good. Pretty good. He gets a yip sometimes <laughs> and I can get in his head. Like we probably shouldn't golf together because I would completely throw you no. off your game. Yeah, it would be would. as a matter of fact, knowing you as well as I know you now, my bet is by the sixth hole, you would just, you might just leave. You might Howdy. say, I've had enough okay. of you. I can't stand it anymore. You're Absolutely. probably like eight over by then. And you're like, you just, you're yeah. done. With that said, I'm going to get a little tea, and I'm going to put this ball on the tee for you, so give me a second. You and I have both talked about, and Dan has mentioned it as well, sort of the rise over the last, I don't know, five, six, seven years of passive investing. In other words, money just flows into the market. doesn't matter what's money flows in. Apple finds itself, Danny Moses, in 332 ETFs, of which Apple is a top 15 holding. So it's become its own asset class. Now, I would say this, and I've said this a number of times, the biggest beneficiary of passive investing has been Apple. Not to cast aspersions, it's an amazing company, but money flows into that stock. If you're listening to this, there's a very good chance, whether you realize it or not, you own Apple. So with that said, it's a great thing on the way up. My concern has been, and this has played out a number of times over the last five or six years, when passive becomes active, Danny, it's never active on the way up. So when you see these three downgrades and a stock that has recently made its all-time high with a valuation that doesn't make a whole hell of a lot of sense, does it mean anything to you or you just sort of dismiss it out of hand? If you actually want to be constructive in the market these first few days of the year, the equal weight S&P has been outperforming, obviously, the S&P the same way it underperformed as the MAG-7, or I call it MAG-6 plus Tesla, 
we're outperforming. So no one looks at the construct underneath. So I think this is actually a healthy dispersion in the sense of money coming out of some of these bigger overvalued names, potentially going into potential catalyst-driven single-name stuff. So yes, I think it's more momentum factor investing that's been driving the ship. And there are so many of these large funds that are levered that really control kind of those flows. And then they, that's self-fulfilling, too passive. I want to bring up one of those names in particular, which falls, I think, in a sector that will outperform in 2024, kind of in the Staples area. And I think the stuff you guys just talked about in big pharma is important. I think energy will be in that group as well. Sectors that are defensive in nature. I think sectors that you can feel comfortable owning on a valuation perspective. Look at this Walgreens boots today, right? WBA. So the option market had already priced in they were going to cut that dividend. I mean, the dividend yield was 7%. No one believes a 7% dividend yield unless you're an MLP or a private REIT, right? So that was going to happen. So they did the right thing. They cut their dividend, lo and behold, to a dollar a year. I mean, it's not like that they cut from a dollar ninety-two. They were paying out $1.7 billion in cash a year. So they're still going to pay out $850, $870 million. Anyway, point being, they're going to use that money in cash to buy back debt and potentially make other investments. And the stock's cheap. Stock got hammered this morning. Why? The, the algos that are the dividend ETFs that control those things, right? From a market weight perspective, blitz them. Look at what they're in. They're in all the top dividend ETFs, right? I don't know exactly how all those are calculated, but this is what I talk about for people out there that are listening. These are your opportunities. It's not about being bullish or bearish. This is a name that I think value investors are gobbling up today. Stock's nicely off of its lows here. I'm not saying it's going back to 30. I bring up another point, GM, old school consumer. I'm not calling it a staple, more of a cyclical, but it, right in front of us, they announced that buyback at the end of last year. Stock was up 5%. You could have made another 10 by owning it. And I think there's going to be the theme for 2024 is kind of old school cyclical companies defensive companies that have seen these cycles before that can manage their balance sheets. And that's what I'm looking for on these type of sell-off opportunities to buy things, because I think that's very important. So Guy, a long-winded way of answering your question is you got to take advantage of the good and the bad parts of passive. And to be frank, I don't respect enough the momentum investing and the passive flows where they're just coming in blindly and buying everything. But all this truly is right now is a market cap weighting issue that's going on to me as far as what the market's doing with the big boys. A lot of great stuff there, Danny. And I would just say like with an Apple now that's down, you know, 9% from those recent highs with an S&P that's down just, you know, two and a half percent or so, Apple could present a really good opportunity for a lot of the reasons that you just mentioned in a way. Okay. So like when you think about like a staple, like Procter and Gamble, which is well off its highs, topped out, I think six or seven months ago, again, trades at 21 and a half times, expected high single digits earnings growth, low single digits sales growth, 50% gross margins, that's better than Apple right now that trades at 27 and a half times. So here's the one thing I'd say about Apple. If it gets unfairly, let's say, maligned for some of the, like, let's say the passive goes to active for a fundamental reason, and then you can start discounting some of the fundamental reasons, and this thing gets back to, let's say, 23 times. It was just trading, what, at $165, guy. Like, then you say to yourself, there's an opportunity here, and then you start putting together the potential fundamental catalyst. This is a company that did not introduce a single generative AI product last year. They barely even talked about it. They leaned into services growth. Well, let me tell you this, people. If this company is able to actually put together something generative AI associated with spatial computing, in February, they're going to introduce, at least for consumers, right, this Vision Pro. Again, no expectations built into that. Then all of a sudden, there could be a narrative that could justify a higher multiple based on the integration of generative AI products around 
spatial computing, which is also obviously wearables and the like. And so that's how I kind of think about picking up opportunities and names like this. But you definitely need a little fear in the story, and that doesn't exist yet, but it might be evident after the company guides when they report late January, early February. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro-contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com micros. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry iConnections membership only platform brings together the asset management community providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually with an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers their community oversees an astounding 48 trillion dollars and 16 trillion dollars in assets respectively iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events we invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one -on -one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. I'm going to try to set this up in a way that does not make people leave the podcast abruptly or, Danny, make people's eyes glaze over. So Treasury, the United States Treasury, that's one entity. And there's the Federal Reserve. That's A lot of times people conflate. I mean, I'll just say this. In terms of the Federal Reserve, one of their more interesting programs, Danny Moses, is what they call Operation Twist, and I mention that because, of course, Oliver Twist, as you all know, is a Charles Dickens book. So when they come out and do these things, I get all excited because it's a literary reference. But Danny Moses, September 17th, 2019, do you remember that day by any chance? I do. The Repo Man yes, came. Yes, the Repo Man came. Something that should be benign, boring, nothing going on, just sort of matter of fact, right? arcane the whole thing i would suggest and i'm just and i've said this before on this podcast that on that day the seeds were sown from that day on when intraday yield spiked to over 10 percent and you can explain what happened and why you're starting to see things that might be eerily similar that was sort of set in motion what we saw and i understand covid but that set in motion what we saw in large part in 2020 anyway danny you're seeing something in the repo market that i think frightens you a little bit. First of all, I want to say this again. I said this last year. The Federal Reserve is lucky to have Lori Logan there in Dallas. Now, she's not a voting member right now, but she's on the committee. She ran the open market operations for the Fed out of the New York Fed literally from 2012 to 2022. You're going to hear her name a bunch here. So effectively, just to keep this simple, you have bank reserves. And as bank reserves start to drop, that's obviously a danger to the system, correct? So what's happening right now is the Fed knows that on the quantitative tightening by taking this liquidity potentially out of the market, the inability of these banks to basically lever up anymore because they have to hold X amount of capital against their treasuries and agencies and so forth 
to kind of participate and provide liquidity into the markets. They see something right now. And the reason I say that is in the Fed press conference that we had in the middle of December, the last question was, what do you think about quantitative tightening? And he goes, well, we're not making a decision on it now. Well, the Fed minutes, they did go into it a lot deeper than he indicated on that call. So now I talked about this last week, what the big theme will be potentially in 2024 is when does QT stop? Well, they're so scared, guy, about what happened post-traumatic stress disorder from 2019 that bank reserves are fine right now. Let me just be clear, the 3.4 trillion. They think that 2 trillion is kind of the level that you have to really start to care. So this is not a huge issue right now. However, I think they're seeing the trends in it. They're seeing these things dropping. They're seeing demands at their SRF standing repo facility kind of increase. So usage is going up again. Just keep this on the radar screens and let's just keep it simple. Banks lending to each other in the markets and stuff like that. As that starts to get higher, that creates a lot of stress. And one last thing I'm going to say on this is that I said this again. I said this last week. I'll say it again. People are focused so much on the longer end of the yield curve. It's funding costs that matter for everything. It does everything I talked about, any type of securitization, auto loans getting off books, credit card loans getting off books. These things moving through the system are all based upon funding costs. And funding costs is tied to SOFR, right? And it's tied to the Fed rates basically on the short end. So that's the part I think that people, they get excited when 10-year yields come in. That's only one small part of the story here for funding. So I think that's going to be a theme here going forward in 2024. So, Danny, let me ask you this. You know, we had Steve Eisman, your former partner on Fast Money a couple months ago, and he talked about what he thought was a, a fairly benign environment, like economic environment and for the consumer, because we're really trying to press him on banks and lending and, and a whole host of other things. And he was on again this past week. And he seemed, again, other than the euphoria around, let's say, the markets and really the expectations, obviously, of rate cuts and what that means for the economy, he said something really interesting. I think we probably covered it back then is that, you know, the economy is very different now. The consumer in general, I mean, like parts of the economy are far less rate sensitive than they have in the past, right? As we've made this shift more towards like a service-based sort of economy. And I'm just curious, like how you think about that, because that's one of the things I think a lot of folks got wrong about last year, right? When we thought there was going to be credit contraction, especially after the SVB blow up in March and, you know, in April and the like here. How do you think about about that in a way, because I'm trying to figure out what I got wrong. I'm not an economist. You know what I mean? I don't do that sort of, but that one thing has stuck out to me over the last few months. I think historically rates moving up like they did, and I still think we're going to see it. And we have seen it in delinquencies and auto. We, we are seeing it out there. It's just to your point, Dan, it's not front and center and it's not horrible. I think the fact that we were locked into so much longer duration mortgages than the last cycle, right? Thank God those products and the two and three year arms weren't as, weren't as prevalent this time around. That was a big deal. The point about how things changed during COVID and people moving out of the cities and so forth and locking themselves into their homes, not having to commute as much, obviously going forward, change the lifestyles of people. But Dan, I think the banks themselves are reserved. So there's two things here. One is, are the banks safer than they were and are adequately reserved? Right now it appears so, yes, right? That's one part. How's the consumer? I think it's going to be the haves and the have-nots and we're seeing stresses in the system. And when you see things like buy now, pay later, take the excess people, right? Which are not reported to credit agencies. And yeah, it's not a huge amount, but it's enough to kind of move the needle and people find themselves using these extreme measures to extend their kind of credit, right? I think those are things that I'm watching. So there is no comparison. I think when you ask questions to people from that time period, I've learned so much from Steve, obviously going back to the 90s, working with him literally in the mid 90s on the first subprime auto disaster time period. I think to me, and I think Steve would agree, it's funding costs. If you ask Steve that question differently, if you said, say, Steve, if funding costs, really, if, if this repo blew up and all these things were to happen, would you be concerned? His answer would be yes. But at this moment, 
things are functioning. Yeah, and, and that was his point. Things that don't need to be financed are doing just fine. But, Guy, let me ask you this. If you look at the move since late October of J.P. Morgan, it's now a half a trillion dollars in market cap. It's gone from basically $135 to today, making a new all-time high at about 172 and change. What does that say to you? Okay, about how investors are thinking about all of these issues that we just talked about, because the CEO of this bank has been actually one of the most bearish CEOs in all of America, you know, in talking about economic storms and be prepared for much higher yields. And really, you know, he looked like a genius from basically the summer until October when yields went from three and a half percent to five percent in the 10 year. But we just got back to three, eight, two, and now we're at four percent. So again, I think we have a market that probably looks like three and a half at four and a half in the 10 year for the better part of 2024 right now. As we sit here, JP Morgan stock made an all time high. It traded to levels we last saw, I think, in the fall or December of 2020. 21 or thereabouts. It's gotten itself from a relatively inexpensive, you know, in terms of its historical valuation to once again be an expensive stock, regardless of what metric you want to look at, price to book, price to tangible book, whatever it is, it's gotten ahead of itself. With that said, the biggest beneficiary of the Silicon Valley Bank and First Republic back in March, April of last year was JP Morgan. Without question, right? I mean, they walked into a windfall for them. So maybe they're deserved of that. And I'll say right now, four banks are basically dominating the landscape here in the United States. But with all that said, you have to ask yourself, what environment are we walking into in 2024? We're walking into more regulation, tighter lending standards. I don't understand how banks can be trading at levels that we're seeing right now, Danny Moses. To me, it doesn't make a lot of sense other than People are looking for safety in the form of these two, three, four different banks. Yeah, and Danny, let me ask you this. J.P. Morgan, one and a half times book, and then you have a Bank America and a Wells basically trading at book, and then you have a city that got a bunch of upgrades over the last week or so, trading at half of its book value. How do you think about like the landscape? Because again, we kept on hearing for the better part of 2023, when we get that steepener going, right, and, and the yield curve, that's going to be good for banks. It's been better for some banks than others. Yeah, let me just say, Dan, to follow up to your first question you asked me following the Steve interview, a lot of the credit has been moved from the consumer balance sheet to government balance sheet and commercial balance sheets, right? We still are dealing with commercial real estate, which will be a massive theme for the next several years. And the government debt, we won't go into any 34, just eclipsed 34 trillion. So that's where a lot of it has shifted to, right? So as far as it goes right now, as we move into earnings season, and as we, when we come on next week, we'll be previewing, obviously, the bank earnings, which are going to start, I believe, late next week. You think about a great fourth quarter for the most part for these banks, right? So the marks will look good, obviously, on the fixed income. We know that investment banking started to pick up. There was some M&A. We know that there's IPOs that are brewing here unless the market goes off the rails. So to separate kind of a Citigroup who is more inter internationally focused and has potentially some other catalysts that they can sell some of these international assets to it to what is safe, Dan? What can we own? And that's JP Morgan. And if Jamie Dimon was running his business based upon 7% rates, he should look really good considering the 10-year is around 4% right now. So I think it's safety kind of knowing what you own, and people will pay a premium for that. I think the Wells Fargo's of the world, I would not own. I'm not saying I'd be short them, but if you gave me banks to pick, it would be J.P. Morgan. We talked about this. They're, Goldman Sachs obviously had a low bar also, and now they're going to lap a very bad, I believe, fourth quarter, first quarter, second quarter. So 
Think about those comps as well. Look for the companies where there was very little M&A, very little IPO stuff going on, right? Activity and trading. And that's kind of what you want to own because the comps are going to look good. So I don't think you're going to get that out of city. Cities of the world, I think it's going to stay cheap. It's been cheap since I got into this business for the most part, ever since the Chuck Prince was dancing or something was going on. That was, I think, that during that time period. So In our show notes, I'm going to put in just to tie a ribbon around this last conversation. Goldman Sachs had a note out in August of last year which is lines up pretty well with what we're saying. U.S. money supply is shrinking for the first time in 74 years on the back of everything that Danny was talking about before, but some other things as well. And you go back historically and look, it, it's an interesting set of circumstances that are set forth when this happens and then in subsequently what happens to markets. Now, Danny Moses, we live in the United States, is that correct? Yes. It is still, last I looked, the largest economy in the world. True? Yes, Gross domestic product, don't they still call it that, Dan? GDP. GDP, yeah. right, Danny? Is that what they call it still? They call it that, yeah. I believe in the United States, it's what, $24 trillion ish I'll round up sure. if you want. You want me to go yeah, to round 20? Up. I'll say 25 Why not? This week, earlier this week, I believe it was Tuesday, not that it matters, but I'm a stickler for sort of just being aware and being correct about certain things. U.S. debt surpassed $34 trillion. $34 trillion with a T. So you take 34 you divide debt to GDP in this country, Danny, depending on what numerator denominator, it's 135% minimum, if not higher. And I've talked to Mike Novogratz about this, and you have thoughts about this as well. But what I'll tell you is no developed economy in the history of mankind has been able to rebound from that type of debt to GDP levels. I asked Steve Eisman about this, and this is not casting aspersions again to use the term, and he didn't seem to be alarmed by it. I am. What are your thoughts? So, yes, Guy, I look at this usdebtclock.org every once in a while. If you want to feel good about your personal finances, go on that and look at the debt accumulating every millisecond up there. It has the GDP on it. You go back to the 50s and the 60s and the 70s, 80s, 90s, we're in uncharted territory. And I think people believe that we'll just print our way out of this and we'll be fine. But at some point, you're going to have to pay the piper. And it does matter. And if we get the situation again, where rates were moving up in the fall of last year because the amount of issuance that had to come because of our ability to potentially pay our debts, that's a scary thought. So we'll stick to the micro on this part versus trying to think about that macro because I don't want to think about it. But we need GDP, to your point, Guy, to grow dramatically. And if GDP does grow, great. It's great for the economy. It's great for everybody. You're not going to get a lot of Fed rate cuts. You won't need them because things will be fine. So I guess what I'd say the real issue here is that debt service. The U.S. is going to spend a trillion dollars in, in fiscal 2024 to service that debt, right? So when you hear some of the expectations for where yields might go, that's the problem, right? So we're in what is, and we've been talking about this, Danny, you started talking about this in the summer of 2021. We are in a stagflationary environment. The Fed just told us they're expecting one and a half percent GDP growth in 2024, right? In, in an environment even if we have yields at 4%, you know, the last time we had the 10-year at 4%, equities were much lower, right, predicated on slower growth. But right now we have all these weird dynamics with 50-year low unemployment, a lot of the stuff that we've talked about that's making the Fed's job really hard, right? So when you have debt service as high as it is right now, equaling what our U.S. government pays for the military or pays for healthcare or pays for these sorts of things, all of a sudden there's a new line item that will depress growth, 
right? And so there's only a couple ways out of this is that you cut expenses dramatically, which is what one party would like to do, or you raise taxes dramatically, which is what another party would like to do, which leads to, in an election year, a whole host of really diametrically opposed sort of strategies, right? Which I actually think both suppress growth in a way. So you tell me, I guess, how risk assets act in a stagflationary environment with totally new dynamics that we have not seen in a while, which is like really think about this record low unemployment that we have. We also have this situation where after 40 years or 50 years, we are trying to reorient supply chains, which are also inflationary. And so if you want to continue to battle inflation, you have to keep rates higher for longer in a way, right? So that might be to kind of put put a bookend to how we started the show in a way. That's what makes investing, I think, in 2024 so much more difficult than 2022, because it was very clear to us in 2022 how markets were going to go, right? It was upper left, bottom right, very orderly sell-off, crescendoed in Q4, right? And then if you got the sentiment train right, and then in 2023, people were back to buying every dip. I think that becomes much, much harder in 2024, because the path to rates meaningfully lower, which would buoy risk assets, is not very clear to me right now. Are you a fan of magicians, Danny Moses? It's all illusion. It's all an, it is all an illusion. I'm glad you- Wait, wait, that was his Arthur. That, is that what you were doing there, Danny? No, a little no, bit? that was Doug Henning. It was somebody doing oh. the Doug Henning. It's illusion. It's all illusion. It was a, well, it's not a of, live skit. Anyway, go ahead. One of the yeah. great magicians of my lifetime was David Copperfield. Now, Dickens also wrote about David Copperfield. With that said, these cats, when I say these cats, these people have to be effing magicians to get themselves out of this one. And here's the reason why. In January of 2020, something called the Congressional Budget Office, another bunch of geniuses, they projected that U.S. debt would go to $34 trillion in fiscal year 2029. What year is it? 2024. Thank you, Dan. Thank you for answering that question. So they missed that one by about five years. And the problem is GDP is growing stair-step where you're having a nonlinear move in the debt, which is problematic. You think about how quickly we've gone from 32 to 34. I mean, it's a blink of an eye. That's a problem. So you can say all you want, but that number is going to continue to increase. At I don't want to say exponential because that's not entirely accurate, but in a almost exponential way. And there's no way, Danny Moses, before we get out of this one, the GDP catches up. Yeah, I agree. We are, like I just said before, when I went through it, it's not a pretty picture. If the U.S. was a stock, I don't think it would trade so well. And what is the U.S. stock? It's treasuries. Mm -hmm. And so let's see how that goes. So, And let's see if the geniuses at Moody's or S&P are paying attention to the same thing we're paying attention to. I get seasick. Like when I watch Danny Dangerous Catch, I actually get sick. It's a problem. Now, I love to fish, so I sort of suck it up and fish on boats and figure I'm going to get sick. But I don't, I'm not one of these people. A lot of people, Dan, like to go on the catamaran and sunset cruise and no, all that. Not your jam. I, not, no interest whatsoever. Yet, Danny Moses, shipping is still a thing. If you think about it, how evolved we've become, you still got to ship stuff, right? And one of the things on your radar screen, mine as well, Dan, a lot of geopolitical stuff going on that nobody wants to seem to acknowledge, but that's having an impact on a lot of different things, not least of which shipping rates. Geopolitics matter when it finally comes home to roost. People can ignore it all they want, but when it has a direct impact potentially on their livelihood, then they're going to care. And this isn't anything overly dramatic at the moment, but I would point you to the stocks of Zimmer Holdings, ZIM, and Hapag Lloyd, and Maersk right now, and they're going up for a reason. The reason is that shipping rates 
are accelerating because of the bombings in the Red Sea, the inability to use the Suez Canal. Not to be a geography major here, but if you have to go around the Cape of Good Hope in Africa, that's a longer trip, I would think, Guy. And the Panama Canal is something about, it's very shallow these days, so you can't use that either. So to put this in perspective, North Asia shipping to the East Coast, the rates are up 65%. To the West Coast, they're up 72%. You have to have more for insurance because of all the bombing and terrorism. You get capacity reduction because not only ships getting bombed, they're being taken out of service, and the rerouting and delay. So will this matter? It's certainly not a positive. Maybe it's a positive for the stock short term, but we talked about global supply chain issues during COVID, and this could be an issue. So even a small amount can hurt the U.S. consumer. And I think the Fed's going to be watching this as well. And we just sent back U.S. government officials to the Middle East because things are heating up, obviously, in the Middle East in general. I think one of the reasons is there's concern here that all of a sudden price of goods could start to go up. So again, hopefully this is transitory and this won't matter, but I don't see this thing resolving itself. And it's just something to pay attention to. And by the way, look at those stocks, those things. You know, the, these things trade like four times yeah. earnings because they're Yeah, they're but so Danny, sticky. sell them. Yeah. Transitory. We just sent three like warships. I would rather focus on crude oil because wouldn't crude oil be a better indicator of heightened political risk in that same region? And it's trying to find a little bit of a home here at 70 bucks down from 95 over the last two and a half months or so. But it really doesn't get off the mat too much. If crude oil starts working its way back to 80 on geopolitical risk, I think all of this probably speaks to like weak demand. If there's weak global demand, for shipping, you're going to see these rates come in and you're going to see these stocks come in kind of quickly. I just think that crude oil is probably a better indicator for what you're trying to express here. But I think it's worth noting. And again, it's just another input. Yes, all of those things are true. And we can agree to disagree in terms of what it means for the commodity. But what's not going away are these geopolitical tensions now seemingly popping up each and every day that, again, maybe the market shouldn't care about because, to your point, Dan, it seems to look past it. But at a certain point, I think things can get dicey enough where the market does take notice. And I don't think, even with the VIX, Danny, going up to levels we're seeing now, I don't think it in any way, shape, or form is taking into consideration some of the things that can manifest themselves over the next couple of weeks. Yeah, for sure. And to follow up on Dan's point, oil tankers aren't being hit as much. That's the livelihood of people in the Middle East. So they're tactically probably doing things to themselves to not hurt their ability to get some type of revenue. But yeah, just in general, geopolitics, we all talked about is underappreciated globally, and it wasn't priced in. I still don't think it's priced into the markets in general, but take advantage of these short-term situations that hopefully de-escalate over time. Maybe those are buying opportunities, right? At the same time, maybe selling some of these shipping stocks over time or, or selling opportunities. Yeah, and I, I guess the point that I was trying to make too, Danny, is that like tanks started rolling into Ukraine from Russia in early 2022. And if you go back and you just kind of look at crude and you look at natural gas, they kind of topped out not long after that. And so if we were to have some sort of heightened tension in the Middle East, I mean, we had crude oil, you know, in around 90 after that October 7th terrorist attack, when a lot of folks thought there was going to be the sort of response from Israel and its allies that we've had and look what's happened to the commodity there, right? So to me, I just feel like at some point in the not so distant future, investors get comfortable with like kind of the upside downside of these sorts of things. And it's not a huge driver, I think, for at least risk asset prices. I'll tell you this, sailors, I'm not one, but you know, people that would sail for a living, they were not happy if they had to go around the Cape of Good Hope. You have these ocean currents sort of all sort of coagulating at one point. The cold currents meet the warm currents. Very dangerous. So the Cape of Good Hope, it's not my favorite cape. I mean, I'll give you Cape Horn in Chile. But here's my favorite one, Cape Fear. The remake De of the Cape... Nick Counselor. De, De Niro Counselor. That's right. 
That's Robert De Niro. One of Nick Nolte's better performances, by the way. Next week, we have some things we want to look at before we get out of here. Before we get to your picks, Danny Moses. Listen, front center is bank earnings on Friday. I mean, so we're coming out of the gate hot, as they say, in 2024. Can we glean anything from these things? Or there are more important earnings as we get into I'll February. just say this. I know Danny gave a little bit of a, a preview of what we're going to see and some of the comps that we have year over year and some of the marks that a bunch of these money center banks are going to. I, I just cannot see a scenario that J.P. Morgan is is any higher than where it is right now. And you've been highlighting this guy from purely a technical standpoint. It looks like you know the, a double top. I don't know how you can go from 135 to 172 back to a prior high and think that you can make a meaningful new high and then establish a new rate above that. This is a half a trillion dollar market cap. So I'd be just selling that one and maybe looking to buy some of these other ones that you think are a bit cheaper that might have, you know, kind of lower bars to cross. I, I do think that there will be a theme emerging in 24 with the banks. JP Morgan, you know, in hindsight, sold First Republic. And there was a couple other MA that went on. That's very accretive to them. So we have to start to account for that, obviously, over the course of 24. I think there's going to be more of this. I, I think there's going to be you know, small. I'm not calling any banks out right now, but I think we're going to see a situation where there's more M&A and maybe the market is forecasting that. Maybe they're paying a premium right now for names like JP Morgan or, or that are the government's bank, right? And that can come to the rescue. I don't know, but I certainly wouldn't short them, but I agree with Dan. These these things are not cheap. But I, you might want to focus more on like an American Express, okay? Yeah. That's gone from a 52-week low to a 52-week high that's had this sort of massive move. I mean, we're talking like 142 to 187 since late October. And to me, that's where you're going to start seeing pockets of kind of credit deterioration or default and the like, or what they have to say about reserves. Because to me, the other banks, you know, the, obviously there's a lot of consumer lending there, but they're wrapped up in a whole host of other things. And also with mortgage rates down now, you might see some refi activity. I know that some of the data wasn't particularly great over the last couple of weeks that might overshadow some of these other areas in consumer credit. American Express, when it bottomed out, Dan, to your point in, I think, October, like many stocks did in October, around 140-ish or so, that was a bit of a double bottom going back to September of 2022. But what I'll tell you is, as we approach this sort of 190 level, we are approaching the all-time high that we made in February of 2022. So American Express better, again, be a bit of a magician here to use that David Copperfield reference if they want this stock to continue higher. Now, Danny Moses, we have reached it. This is it. This is the final regular season week, and you do make picks in the playoffs of the National Football League. Please sort of educate me or remind me of what your record stands at right now. 24 and 24. Oh, that's 500. Remember last In other words, year, though, I 24 into... wins and 24 losses. That's a right. lot of vig. Would you be losing so you, money? You, that's a lot of right. vig. I was going to say, when you bring the vigorish into it, <laughs> yeah. that's a problem. You know, yes, but I'm, I'm seeing clearly, okay? And you mentioned Eddie Johnny Murphy's. Nash song, I can see clearly. Right, city of Detroit which I want to go into. So there's fat fingers in the stock market, right? We've yeah. seen it happen before. Mm -hmm. We've all probably sat next to someone who misput an order. Sometimes they take them off the tape. Sometimes you got to eat it. Well, there was a fat finger down in Hard Rock on their betting app in the state of Florida the other day that my friend Brian, a degenerate like me from Jacksonville, my high school, we used to skip school and go to the dog track. Of course this did. is this guy. He's on a flight from Europe. He's on the app, but he can't bet because he's not in, you have to be in Florida. He goes, Danny, you need to look at something. There was a line right now that for both for Baltimore to beat Detroit in the Super Bowl, not a crazy thing, is 500 to 1. I look at it, I'm like, that can't be right. And Detroit to beat Baltimore is 60 to 1. The fat finger is the extra zero right. instead of 50 to 1, 500 to 1. So I put down the maximum I can do is $50, of which I will split with Brian. And I tweeted out, 
Hard Rock responds to the tweet. Whoa, good luck, since they've, they've now taken it down. After 20 minutes, a lot of other people finding it in the states where you can bet Hard Rock also did it for maximum 50 yards, and they, the bet is gone now. They're not even offering any matchups Look on any of this you. stuff. So I don't think it's going to happen, but this company, WagerWire, prices your bets live. They said my bet's worth $677. So, Danny, that's how you save your season is, is, is a 500 no, I'm just mentioning bet? that. That gambling, if you could find an anomaly like that, that yeah. would make up for 24 bad picks. All right, so let me cut to this. Okay, so in Lot other of, words, you just sort yeah. of glossed over a very mediocre regular season. Well, yeah, listen. Okay, you know, that's Dan a good job by you. Dan's doing well. Dan's doing well on these apps. He's, he's, he's doing well. So let me just say this. So there's games that are meaningful and games. I'm not going to focus on the games that don't mean anything. Three games, Houston's at Indianapolis. If Houston wins, they win the division. If the Colts win, they'll make the playoffs, I believe, but not win the division if Jackson wins. Anyway, give me Houston minus one. C.J. Stroud is back and strong. Green Bay has, I think, put this team together. They're playing Chicago at home. Chicago's playing great, but not playing for anything. Green Bay minus three. And then the game, the granddaddy of them all is Buffalo, Miami. And Buffalo's been hot. They've been finding a way to win minus three at Miami. I, I think Miami's going to end up as a wild card team here instead of winning that division. So Buffalo pretty much needs to win to get in. So give me Buffalo minus three, Green Bay minus three, and Houston minus wow. one this week. Do the Eagles, will they right the ship as they head into the playoffs, or do they seem to be on this sort of spiral? Are they spinning through the toilet bowl of the NFL right now, Danny Moses? I, I, you know, they'll probably win this week, but they're not going anywhere. That team lost its mojo. Something's wrong in there in the management of the, of the team for sure. It's discord. Well, I will tell you categorically that the New York football Jets, I mean, obviously they will not be in the playoffs, and you can probably kiss next year away. As as I've mentioned a number of times, I can't stand the New York Mets. And for you six or seven fans out there, I'm sorry. And for you Jet fans equal, the Jets used to not be a big deal for me until that blowhard Rex Ryan got on the scene. Now they can't lose enough. The Giants will figure it out next year. But I'll say this. You're San Francisco 49ers, Danny Moses, and you talked about their quarterback, Brock Purdy, who's not going to win the MVP. They look Pretty solid going into the playoffs. I know that Ravens blew them out, but you could see a rematch of that Ravens-Niners game of a week or so ago as your Super Bowl game. So I'll just throw that out there, although I do love the Lions. A lot of people say to us, the three of you, you're always too dour, right? You're always negative. And it's interesting because staying with the Dickens theme, he wrote in 1863 a novel called Bleak House. <laughs> we are not going to be the bleak house nope. in 20... We're not going to do it. We're going to look for... Pos We're going to see the energy in my voice. Yeah. I'm like optimistic. Yeah. But I'll tell you this as well, folks. We are going to keep it real as we go through 2024. So thanks for joining us. Demo, I wish you the best of luck with your picks. I hope at least you get a game over 500 so you have a hook to hang your hat on. And we'll see you next week. See you next week, everyone. Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, and FactSet. If you like what you heard, make sure you hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show, and we also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com. Derivatives are not suitable for all investors and involve the risk of losing more than the amount originally deposited and any profit you might have made. This communication is not a recommendation or offer to buy, sell, or retain any specific investment or service.